And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 13th, 72nd day of the year. 293 days remain till the year's over with. And for those who are fascinated by holidays, we got some doozies for today. It's National Canine Veterans Day, National Napping Day, Adelaide Cup Day, Canberra Day celebrates uh, the rich history and numerous uh, contributions to uh, Australia, Commonwealth Day, Commonwealth Day in Canada, Eight Hours Day. International Every Girl Wins Day. Uh, Ken Day, celebrating the Ken Doll. L. Ron Hubbard Day. National Coconut Tort Day. National Earmuff Day. National Good Samaritan Day. National Jewelry Day. National Open an Umbrella Indoors Day. Smart and Sexy Day. Tarlock Anniversary Day. And of course, all the the weeks and months we've talked about in previous shows. You know, before we get really started, there are times even though I try to steer clear of politics, when I just have to say something. Well, those that are in my age bracket remember very well Hanoi Jane, Jane Fonda, photographed in North Vietnam, Vietnam while we were fighting them, sitting on an, uh, an aircraft gun, uh, celebrating her friends, the North Vietnamese. Well... Sitting on a North Vietnamese on an aircraft gun just wasn't enough for Hanoi Jane. Now, what happened, she says, was just a joke, and everybody knew it was a joke. But unfortunately for her, even the other folks who appeared with her on the show didn't know it was a joke. She ignited a firestorm by calling for the murder of pro-lifers on The View on Friday. Now, that show was just getting out of hand. With Barbara Walters having, uh, I think she died... Um, people like Whoopi Goldberg are just running crazy. Now, Jane Fonda issued a statement. She said, while women's reproductive rights are a very serious issue and extremely important to me, my comment on The View was obviously made in jest. Yes, she's going to say, go kill somebody in jest. She made even the leftist hysterics of the view uncomfortable. And they all began to try to explain her remarks away. Which, if her jest had been obvious, nobody would have had to have done. I mean, Jane Fonda, I mean, her father was a well-respected actor, Henry Fonda. And Jane made a few appearances. I mean, she was Barbarella and did a few other films. But for the most part... She's made a living with her mouth. 
like her uh, appearance in uh, North Vietnam. The um, you know, it's interesting to note that. Uh, The left has done everything it can to uh, penalize and punish anybody that doesn't agree with them. And a lot of folks who have taken what the left said as the gospel and run with it are having to eat crow today. Two nights ago, there were excerpts from tens of thousands of hours of security footage from the U.S. Capitol taken January 6th. Now, if you recall, January 6th is when Trump supposedly led an attempt to uh, overthrow the government. Now, since he was the government at the time, that's a little stretch of the imagination. Uh, Now, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, released the footage to Fox News commentator Tucker Carlson. And while facts checkers state that it's disinformation to claim that uh, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi was in charge of Capitol Police on that day, the fact is that the United States Capitol Police is under the oversight of Congress. That's according to the United States Capitol Police themselves. And that would be the same Congress that convened the January 6th committee that it used millions of dollars of taxpayer money to turn that day and, in fact, that the entire event into a message point that would be used to tar a former president as a would-be terrorist and to smear all Republicans by association as insurrectionists and, or as insurrectionist sympathizers and uh, fellow travelers, so to speak. Now, there's no way to unsee Officer Brian Sicknick claimed by some Democrats and leadership by most of the legacy media that have been killed by rioters at the Capitol on that day. But he's shown alive in that video, at least one section. Capitol Police Medical Examiner states this officer died of natural causes, but also he died in the line of duty. Now, whatever the truth of that might be, and with all due respect to Officer Sicknick's family, the Circumstances of his death do matter to the public. As without his death having been caused by the events of January 6th, the breach of the Capitol can't be described as a deadly insurrection. Now, the the contrary that was reported said just the opposite, but Officer Sicknick died two days after January 6th after having suffered two strokes. And there's no way for anybody, even if he or she is a lifelong Democrat, not to notice that Senator Chuck Schumer did not say to the world that the footage that Mr. Carlson aired wasn't real. Instead, he said it was shameful that Fox allowed us to see it. We are the public. It's our money that pays his salary to sit up there and run his mouth. The Guardian characterized Carlson at Fox News uh, as... Uh, overuse of the January 6th footage. 
but maybe I'm mistaken. I thought the press was wanted full transparency for all public interest events. Now, Senator McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, Senate Minority Leader, did not say the video on Fox News was fake or doctored. He said it was a mistake to depart from the views of the event held by the chief of the Capitol Police. Now, is the Capitol Police going to take the position that a stroke is caused by an insurrection? I'd be hard-pressed to believe that he had two strokes without having some uh, preliminary um, accompanying uh, medical conditions. Now, by law, that footage is a public record. And all public records belong to the American people. That's according to the archives. Even though they keep losing mine... Now, another Capitol Police officer, Tarrant Johnson, said he could not get any guidance from his superiors when he called them that the Capitol was being breached. I mean, everything negative was shouted from the rooftops about the Democratic members of that committee. Anything that showed that it was not an insurrection was ignored. They have so far spent in the neighborhood of sixty, seventy million dollars trying to bring down Trump, starting with the Russia hoax. But of course, um, our elected officials, hand to God. Trump is an evil man, should never be allowed to uh, hold office again. Now, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not a Trump detractor. I believe in fairness, something I haven't seen out of our legal system. The, um, the interesting thing is that the very same people who are ranting and raving and carrying on about the January 6th committee and the fact that everything they say is not carved in stone, whenever they're caught uh, doing something improper, well, we just didn't understand all the facts. At what point in time do the facts matter to these people? Well, all that having been said, we've got the Ides of March coming up in two days. That's when uh, Caesar's best friend, Brutus, led a bunch of folks with knives that cut him to ribbons. And you didn't see a, a committee held to uh, determine uh, was Brutus at fault somehow. Well, in 624 A.D., the Battle of Adir, the first major battle between Muslims and Kiryash. 1567, the Battle of Osterweil, traditionally regarded as the start of the Eighty Years' War. 1639, 
Harvard College is named after clergyman John Harvard. If he could see what it's turned into today, he'd turn over in his grave. 1697, Nojpaten, capital of the last independent Maya kingdom, falls to Spanish conquistadors, the final step in the Spanish conquest of Guatemala, and the destruction of an entire civilization to enrich the Spanish. Now, one of my cousins is the king of Spain. I'm descended from the Spanish royal family. But that doesn't mean I agree with everything they did. 1741, the Battle of Cartagena de Andes, part of the War of Jenkins' Air, begins. 1781, William Herschel discovers Uranus. 1809, Gustav IV Adolf of Sweden is deposed in a coup of 1809. 1811, French and Italian fleet is defeated by a British squadron off the island of Vis in the Atlantic during the Napoleonic Wars. 1826, Pope Leo XII publishes the Apostolic Constitution, Corga Valora. She renewed the prohibition of Catholics joining Freemasonry. He didn't like them, so you can't like them. God has spoken. 1845, Felix Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto gets its premier performance in Leipzig, with Ferdinand David as soloist. 1848, the German Revolutions of 1848 begin in Vienna. 1862, the Act Prohibiting the Return of Slaves is passed by Congress, effectively annulling the Fugitive Slave Act of 1815, setting the stage for the Emancipation Proclamation. 1884, the Siege of Khartoum begins. It lasts till January 26, 1885, when the Mahdi's forces overran the British defenders. 1900, British forces occupy Bloemfontein, Orange Free State, during the Second Boer War. 1920, the, the Kapusch briefly asked the Weimar Republic government from Berlin. 1930, the news of the discovery of Pluto, not Mickey's dog, but the, the little planet, is announced by Lowell's Observatory. 1940, the winter war between Finland and the Soviet Union officially ends after the signing of the Moscow Peace Treaty. 1943, the Holocaust, German forces liquidate the Jewish ghetto in Krakow. 1954, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu begins an artillery barrage by Viet Minh forces under Vo Nguyen Giap. Viet Minh victory led to the end of the French First Indochina War and the French withdrawal from Vietnam. Now, interestingly enough, the, uh, the French, the Foreign Legion to be specific, had completely decimated uh, the Viet Minh. They had won the war. But um, Ho Chi Minh, being a very intelligent uh, politician, went to the media and talked about the fact that the French Foreign Legion had among its members a lot of former Nazis. And he went on a hanky-stomping tirade about the French paying Nazis to kill Vietnamese. And so the French... Um, withdrew the Foreign Legion and got their head handed to them. 1957, Cuban student revolutionaries stormed the presidential palace in Havana in a failed attempt on the life of President Fulgencio Batista. 
who was eventually thrown out of office by the one and only um, cigar smoker himself. 1969, Apollo 9 returned safely to Earth after testing the lunar module. 1979, a new jewel movement headed by Maurice Bishop ousted the Prime Minister of Grenada, Eric Gary, in a coup d'etat. 1988, the Sinkin Tunnel, the longest tunnel in the world, an undersea segment, uh, opens between Elamori and Hakodate in Japan. 1992, a 6.6 um, Risen earthquake strikes eastern Turkey with a maximum Mercalli intensity of 8, which is considered severe. 1993, the 93 storm of the century affects the eastern U.S., dropping feet of snow in many areas. We just had snow here in West Texas. 1996, the Dunblane massacre leads to the death of 16 primary school children and one teacher in Dunblane, Scotland. 1997, the Missionaries of Charity chose Sister Nirmala to succeed Mother Teresa as their leader. 2003, an article in Nature identifies the Clampat del Diavolo as a 350,000-year-old Hamid uh, footprint. 350,000 years old. A entity walking upright. And we've been told by religious leaders, the earth, the, um, um, how did they put it? Modern man was formed 3,006 years ago. 2016, the Ankara bombing kills at least 37 people. 2016, three gunmen attacked two hotels on the Ivory Coast town of uh, Grand Bassam, killing at least 19. Uh, 2020, President Donald Trump declares COVID-19 pandemic to be a national emergency. Of course, uh, his lordship... Joe Biden wants to take credit for that. 2020, Breonna Taylor is killed by police officers who were forcibly entering her home in Louisville, Kentucky. Her death sparked extensive protest against racism and police brutality. Now, interestingly enough, I came across an article. It's called Front Page Magazine. It's had... Uh, Individual named, it's a video episode, individual named Candace offers her thoughts on the, the Department of Education. She also talked about the fact the police killed a white man in Utah. No protesters. And Tiger Woods is suing him for, his ex is suing him for $30 million for severe emotional damage. You've got to wonder about that. Um, a lot of these uh, online magazines have the most interesting stories. Mainstream media would have you have you believe if um, if we turned all our guns into slag and everybody uh, walked instead of drove cars, the earth would be a paradise. Of course, you're still going to have the haves and the have-nots. There'd just be a whole lot more have-nots than there are now. Um... There's an Italian um, 
politician. Name of Ellie Schlein. Has Italian, American, and Swiss citizenship. And she is far to the left, even of her own party, which is on the left. She's been elected to head the, the left of center Partito Democratico. And she wants to take it as far left as she can. Now, what I don't understand is what these folks hope to gain by going to the left. Uh, socialism and communism has never been shown to work. Even the Russians uh, have millionaires. That's something that we were assured would never happen under communism. Well, now we've been talking about... Um, Oh, one other thing I want to cover. We just had a thousand plus people storm the bridge crossing from Mexico into the El Paso. And I'd found out from someone that 82% of Mexico has no people. They're all up here. The problem is one of our former leaders said, come on down, we'll give you money, a place to live, food, whatever you need. Now, if he was doing it out of his own pocket, hey, more power to him. But he wants to do it out of everybody's pocket. He wants to use taxpayer dollars to pay all these folks to sit around and have a good time. I mean, if you look at the streets of Portland and Seattle and to a good extent, L.A., you got folks sitting there having a great time smoking marijuana and everybody else is working. But I guess in the mind of the the new left, that's the way it ought to be. Nobody has more than anybody else. The problem is the leaders of this new left have the most. Screw everybody else. Well, we have been talking about um, the real War of the Worlds. And, of course, the um, there have been quite a number of um, encounters between UFOs and U.S. military. In fact, the military of every country. And at the end of the day, all anybody can say is they saw something. Nobody has any proof. And what does our government say? Oh, it's a weather balloon. It was a hoax. Uh, Captain Mantell, whose um, plane was literally knocked out of the air, was chasing the planet Venus. Rather than saying, yeah, there's something up there. We don't know what it is, but, you know, this is uh, this is how things are. Now, I wrote a book called Unfinished Business about unsolved murders. And we, uh, there were a surprising number of unsolved murders. And I'm going to cover a few more of those today because I'm 
Uh, going back to writing, I'm going to do some more um, books about unsolved murders. Now, few unsolved murders contain so many dark secrets and raise so many questions um, as the story I'm going to cover, uh, which is called The Bodies in the Barn. Now, Hunter Feikirk is a small, isolated uh, farm in the hills and forests between the towns of Ingolstadt and Slobenhausen in Bavaria, Germany. Well, I don't like to interrupt the peanut gallery when they're harmonizing, but sometimes it just gets too loud. Now, this little farm that I'm talking about was the home of Andreas Gruber, 63, and his wife, Cecilia, 72, their widowed daughter, uh, Victoria Gabrielle, who was 30, a maid by the name of Maria Baumgartner, who was 44. And one night, it was March 31st, 1922, somebody systematically slaughtered everybody in the family one by one and piled their bodies in the barn. Now, Andreas Gruber was not really a popular man in the community. He was considered aggressive and greedy, and people in a nearby village usually avoided him. Victoria was the only child of Andreas and says he had survived into adulthood. And Locals speculated their children had died because they were not looked after properly and were treated cruelly. One neighbor said, uh, I need to stop and make mention of a very important holiday that I didn't mention. Tomorrow, March 14th, is Pie Day. And I'm going to go have a piece of pie. I don't know about you. Now, that having been said, back to our show about uh, Andreas Gruber. One neighbor said the small children had to stay in the cellar for days. When you passed by, you could hear the children crying. So he wasn't exactly father of the year. And even more damaging to Andreas's reputation was the public knowledge he was having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, Victoria. Her husband, Carl Gabriel, died in France in 1914 during World War I. And year after his death, Andreas and Victoria were convicted of incest between the years 1907 and 1910. Victoria got a month in prison, and uh, Andreas was given a year in prison. It's also rumored Andreas was the real father of Joseph and not the village mayor, Lorenz Sittelberg, with whom Victoria was also having a sexual relationship at the time she became pregnant. Now, Lorenz had wanted to marry Victoria, but he'd been stopped by Andreas, who angrily chased him away from the farm with a, with a, uh, well, in my, where I came from, they were called sling blades. Uh, a shith is uh, what they were called in Bavaria. Grisenz Riger, the Gruber's maid before Maria Baumgartner, later told police she'd overheard Andreas telling Victoria she didn't need to marry because as long as he lives, He's there for her. The maid claimed that by this, uh, Andreas was alluding to the fact that he was there to sexually satisfy his daughter so she didn't need a husband. 
Now, in the days leading up to the murders, Andreas told neighbors about some uh, odd occurrences that had been happening at the farm. Munich newspapers discovered on the kitchen windowsill, where the family found peculiar because it wasn't a local newspaper. When Andreas questioned the postman, Joseph Meyer, about it, he denied he'd delivered the newspaper to anybody in the area. And when Andreas looked out at the snow-covered farmland, he noticed footprints leading from the edge of the nearby forest to the farm, but none leading back. So that gave him the idea there was a trespasser. Somebody was perhaps watching the family. Krasinski Riger certainly thought so. While looking at the farm, she was also uh, convinced that somebody or something was lurking in the shadows of the forest that, uh, to the point that just months before the murder, she packed up her bags and left. About that same time, house keys disappeared from Andreas's desk and somebody attempted to break into the, the engine yard. Andreas also voiced concerns that livestock was missing and that somebody's creeping around in his attic. And over the course of several nights, he heard strange noises coming from the attic, but uh, when he went up to investigate, he didn't find anything. His neighbor told him to go to the police, but Andreas refused, saying, I know how to defend myself. Well, while these incidents were cause for concern, nobody could have expected what happened next. From April 1st, all the members of the Gruber family vanished. Kazilia didn't appear at school that day, a Saturday, and the family didn't attend church on Sunday. And the absence of Victoria, who was a stellar member of the choir, was particularly noticed. Well, on Tuesday, three neighbors decided to investigate. And discovering all the doors were locked, they broke into the barn adjoining the farmhouse. And daylight that came through the, the cracks in the walls of the barn illuminated a ghastly sight. The bludgeoned bodies of Andreas, his wife, Victoria, and her daughter, Kazilu, piled up among the hay. Now, from the barn, the neighbors could get into the farmhouse where they found the, the dead bodies of the new maid, Maria, and little Joseph. Each of the victims had suffered um, fatal blows to the head. Now, the police concluded that the first four victims had been lured one by one to the barn and murdered there before they could even cry out. Killers stacked the bodies one on top of the other and partially covered them with hay and an old door that had been dumped in the barn. Then he went into the farmhouse where he killed Joseph, who was asleep in his cot, and Maria covered their bodies with clothing and sheets. Now, each victim had been bludgeoned with a mattock, a pickaxe-like farming tool on the, uh, the face and the head. The elder, uh, Kozilia, also showed signs of strangulation. And while the majority of the victims died a quick, uh, though vicious, death, the younger Kozilia took several hours to die. With all that she discovered tufts of her own hair tangled in her fingers and in her hands, she apparently pulled some of it out as she lay there dying. Now, the pathologist estimated the murders took place at about 9.30 in the evening on March 31st. That had been Friday night. Furthermore, the killer didn't immediately flee the scene. He remained at the farm for several days, feeding and milking the livestock and helping himself to bread and ham from the pantry. Neighbors later claimed that they had seen smoke coming from the farmhouse chimney. Family dog had been tied up in the barn, but it wasn't harmed. Schobenhausen police were called in to assist the investigators and 
after realizing they were over their heads, they, the more experienced uh, Munich police force took over the case. And their initial theory was the killer was a vagrant motivated by the family's considerable wealth. However, the search of the farm indicated that the gold coins and jewelry had been untouched, and in fact, no belongings or livestock were missing. Well, when police questioned local residents, the name Joseph Bartle came to their attention. He was a serial robber who had once escaped a mental asylum. In 1919, he'd robbed the Alder family in the small village of Evanhausen, about 13 miles from uh, Interkaifek. Many speculated that only a madman like Joseph would have remained at the crime scene, living alongside the dead bodies of his victims for so many days. However, other than the most tenuous circumstantial evidence, nothing tied him to the crime. Now, Mayor Lorenz Schlittenbauer, who had once war uh, wanted to marry Victoria and possibly Father Joseph, was a prime suspect throughout the investigation. One of the three neighbors who discovered the bodies, and he lived... Uh, the closest to um, Interkaifek Farm. And he had fought violently with Andreas over his relationship with Victoria and even reported him to the authorities for their incestuous relationship. According to other neighbors on the scene, uh, Slittenbauer was also said to have been remarkably unfazed when the, the bodies were discovered, despite the gruesome nature of what was found. Slittenbauer outwardly, uh, out, his outlook, uh, one more time, Outwardly calm behavior could also have been attributed to shock. Now, Lorenz Slittenbauer was interrogated at the crime scene on April 5th. At the time of the murders, he claimed he was a happily married man with no motive for killing the entire group of family. Nevertheless, even today, he remains a favorite suspect among the townsfolk of Ingolstadt. Slittenbauer's family still lives in the town. He's and had to endure speculation. He was the killer, even though, as his son Alois pointed out, there never been an indictment. One of the most inventive theories about the case concerned Victoria's ex-husband, Carl Gabriel, who was supposedly uh, killed in the trenches in 1914. Turns out, research showed his body was never actually retrieved, leading the Schrobenhausen chief of police, Ludwig uh, Maxwell, to suggest that maybe Gabriel wasn't dead after all. If he'd survived, he could have traveled to Interkaifek and committed the murders, maybe revenge for his wife's ancestral affair with her own father. However, December 12, 1923, Carl Gabriel's death was officially confirmed by the General Prosecution Office of, for War Losses and War Graves, and as a result, he had to be ruled out as a suspect. Now, the surprising suspect was the cruel and controlling head of the family, Andreas Gruber himself. According to author Adolf Jacob Koppel, um, in an article in the Munich paper, uh, the matic used to kill the vi victims was handmade by Gruber himself and would have been difficult for an untrained person to yield with such a deadly efficiency. However, this theory fails to explain how Andreas could have been inflicted such fatal injuries on himself. Could be he hated himself. So instead of calling it suicide... You'd have to call it murder. 1941, an elderly neighbor named Crescentia Meyer made a deathbed confession to her priest, Anton Huber. She said her brothers, Adolf and Anton Gump, responsible for the Interkafic murders. 
said her oldest brother Adolf had been in an intimate relationship with Victoria, and apparently the question is, who was she in an intimate relationship with? Been infuriated when he became aware of Victoria and Andreas Gruber's incestuous relationship. According to Crescentia Meyer, Adolf and Anton had killed Victoria and Andreas Gruber and then killed everybody else living at the farm to ensure there'd be no witnesses. However, it wasn't until 1952 the police decided to investigate the brothers' possible guilt. By this time, Adolf had been dead for eight years, and Anton was an elderly pensioner who got a girl that denied any involvement in the murders. He was arrested, but uh, after three weeks in custody, released without charge. Well, the combination of the unexplained footprints in the snow leading to, from the forest to the farm, the mysterious sounds apparently coming from the attic, paint a somewhat frightening picture of a sadistic intruder hiding in the house and waiting for his moment to strike. This picture continues to fascinate professional and amateur sleuths many decades after the slayings. But the sheer lack of evidence and complete case records and the deaths of the potential witnesses and suspects means it's doubtful the mystery of the inter-KFEC murders ever be solved. Most recent investigation into the case took place in 1986, and over the years, more than 100 suspects have been questioned. Unfortunately, during World War II, a significant number of the police files were destroyed, and in addition, a bust of all six of the victims' head that had been sent to the Pathology Institute of the University of Munich for analysis had been lost. While the heads were in Munich, they were sent to a clairvoyant who claimed that two people had committed the murders. Well... One year after the, the murders in Hinterkaifeck, a court order was given for the farmhouse and the outbuildings to be demolished. A small bar marble monument near the original site, along with six graves for the family and their maid, is all that now remains to mark the, the site of this uh, unbelievable, horrific murder. Well, it would seem that whoever committed the murder knew the family and their activities very well. And since it was never solved, another instance of, a, of unfinished business. Well, from Hunter Kafik, let's talk about the perfect crime. Are we going to be talking about uh, a history-making uh, perfect crime orchestrated by a ruthless mastermind? Or was even the prime suspect a victim of an unknown mastermind? The murder victim was Julia Wallace, legend of death in the parlor of her marital home in Liverpool, England, January 20th, 1931. And it's widely regarded as one of the most baffling of all unsolved crimes. This was a classic locked room murder mystery that's fascinated crime writers such as Raymond Chandler and Dorothy Sayers, inspired the P.D. James novel The Skull Beneath the Skin, and also been the subject of a television drama, investigative documentaries, and numerous true crime books and articles. The case also made British legal history. It's the first time that a murder conviction was overturned on appeal following a review of the evidence. William 
Herbert Wallace and his wife Julia lived in a small three-bedroom row house in Wolverton Street in a poor district of Anfield in Liverpool. They had been married for 17 years. William had traveled widely as a young man, visiting both India and China. He had to come home because of illness and uh, met Julia a couple of years after his return to Britain. He was now an insurance agent with the Prudential Assurance Company, while Julia was an amateur painter and pianist. In fact, both Julia and William were musically gifted, with William being an adept violin player. People would often, uh, the couple would often play and sing duets together. Julia was exceptionally intelligent, having studied philosophy and dabbled in chemistry. And she claimed to be younger than she actually was. She was actually 17 years older than her 52-year-old husband. According to William, their marriage was harmonious. The friends and neighbors would testify that there was nothing to indicate otherwise. He also said it was my wife's rigid rule not to admit strangers into the house when she was alone. That being the case, how did the killer get in the room? On the evening of Monday, January 19, 1931, 52-year-old William Wallace arrived at the Liverpool Central Chess Club at the City Cafe on North John Street. Club met every Monday and Thursday, but William wasn't actually a regular member. In fact, he had not visited the club for some time. He was known for being an enthusiastic chess player rather than a good one and only qualified for the second-class team. Club captain Samuel Beattie had taken a telephone call for Wallace and had a message for him. Caller said he was R.M. Quarterthrough and requested that Williams should come to 25 Menlo Garden east of the, the following evening at 7.30 to discuss an insurance deal. Man had said, I want to see him particularly. Caller went on to add he couldn't call back because it was his daughter's 21st birthday and he was particularly busy. William took Beatty's note and put it in his pocket, telling Beatty he didn't know anybody in the name of R.M. Qualthrough, but would visit him tomorrow nonetheless. Now, times were tough in Depression-era Britain, and Wallace foresaw the possibility of making some much-needed money. Next evening, Wallace finished his day's work at the Prudential Assurance Company and returned home where Julia had dinner waiting. When the couple finished eating, Wallace told her he was meeting a man he'd hopefully bring him some uh, more insurance business. Wallace put on his coat and added he would be home as soon as he could. Well, he set off for 25 men low guards east. He hadn't heard of the address before, but knew the general area. Boarded a number 26 tram at Belmont Street and then a number 4 tram at Smithdown Road and a 5A at Penny Lane Junction, which set off for Menlo Gardens at uh, about 7.15 p.m. During the journey, Wally chatted with the conductor, and the ticket inspector mentioned he was going to Menlo East on business. Well, when he got off at Menlo Gardens West, he spoke to a woman coming out of her house and asked for directions to Menlo Gardens East, and she really didn't know. Wallace continued to Menlo Gardens West and asked directions for a man named Sidney Hubert. Told Wallace there was no such a street, at least to his knowledge. So Wallace then knocked at 25 Menlo Gardens West, the home of Richard and Katie Mather and asked if a Mr. Qualthrough lived there. Well, they told him he didn't, and Wallace headed toward Menlo Gardens North, which he saw a man at a tram stop. Asked him for directions, and the man was from out of town and could offer no assistance whatsoever. Realizing he was now at the top of Green Lane, where a friend of his, Joseph Crew, lived, Wallace knocked on his door. Receiving no answer, Green and his wife had gone to the 
movies, Wallace walked down Green Lane where he saw a policeman, P.C. James Edward Sargent, and asked him if he knew where Menlo Gardens East was and if he knew Mr. Qualthrough. Apparently, the police officer was a receptive listener. Wallace relayed the entire story regarding the phone call, and he also verified that the time with P.C. Sargent as a quarter to eight. Before he headed home, Wallace walked to the post office and asked once again for directions to Menlo uh, Gardens East. Clerk wasn't sure and suggested Wallace go to the newsagents across the street. Shop assistant Nancy Collins and manageress uh, Lily Pinches listened to Wallace's story and finally convinced him that Menlo's Garden East did not exist. His patience exhausted, he made his way back home, pondering on who R.M. Qualthrough could be and why he had seen fit to leave him a non-existent address on a cold, dark winter's night. He later claimed he spoke to nobody on the way home. However, the, the near neighbor named Lily Hall claimed that she spotted a distinctive figure Wallace in conversation with a short, stocky man. Well, he got home about 8.45 in the evening and discovered he couldn't open either his front or back door. Both doors apparently had been locked from the inside. Next-door neighbors, John and Florence Johnston, saw him standing outside looking worried and asking if he needed any help, and he told him he'd been out for several hours and couldn't get into the house. Meanwhile, while Mr. and Ms. Johnson were present, uh, walked around to the back once again, and this time the door opened. He told his neighbors it opens now, and he went into the house. He saw a ghastly scene. Julia was lying in front of the gas fire in the parlor. She'd been bludgeoned to death with a heavy object. It was such force her skull had been cracked open. Wallace uh, told his neighbors they finished her. Look at her brains. He, according to the neighbors, displayed a surprising lack of emotion. They were standing behind him in the doorway. Police soon arrived to assess the uh, scene and make a search of the house and surrounding area. They knew unless there was no sign of breaking and entering, leading them to believe that Julia herself must have admitted the killer to the house. Anfield was in the grip of a spate of burglaries by a mysterious figure known only as the Anfield Housebreaker. There was speculation that um, he could have been the killer, but no evidence tied him to the murder, and the crime didn't fit his modus operandi. A small sum of money had been stolen from a cash box in the house, but the police decided that uh, this was a ploy to give the impression the murderer was the result of a robbery gone wrong. Now, clearly, the handling of this... Um, investigation left a lot to be desired. While examining the crime scene, officers wandered over the house, much fingerprints that could have belonged to the killer. And, in fact, the pathologist neglected to take the temperature of Julia's body, and therefore an accurate time of uh, death was never determined. Forensics expert named John Edward Whitley McFall based his diagnosis on the body's rigor mortis so put the time at about 8 o'clock. However, rigor mortis could probably occur quite quickly in a frail elderly person such as Julia Wallace, and McFall later amended his estimate to around 6 p.m. Another expert named Dr. Hugo Pierce also put the time of death at about 6 p.m., adding, I'd give it two hours on either side. What was clear was that the murder was frigid and brutal. Blood was splattered across the room, indicating the killer would most likely have had blood on his clothing. In addition, a check of the home sinks and drains revealed that they had been used, indicating the killer had left without washing any blood off his clothing or his body. 
and now there was no direct evidence against him, police soon began to question whether William had killed his wife and engineered his meeting with the mysterious R.M. through to deflect suspicion from himself. They took the fact that William had asked various people for directions as a ploy to establish an alibi for the murder. It later came out that the phone call from R.M. through had come from a payphone 400 miles, uh, excuse me, 400 yards from the Wallace household. And the payphone was close to the stop where Wallace had caught the tram to the Liverpool Central Chess Club. Ever Samuel Beattie, who had taken the phone call at the club, was adamant that the voice on the other end of that line was not Williams. Police found five people with the last name Qualthrough in the Liverpool area and all denied contacting the chess club asking for Wallace. Investigators questioned why William had claimed that the back door of the house was jammed, but as soon as other witnesses were present, it miraculously opened. A raincoat found beneath uh, Julia's body. Uh, Wallace didn't have a spot of blood on the suit he was wearing, so police speculated he could have worn a raincoat over his naked body as he carried out the murder to shield himself from the blood splatter. Well, while the police were building a case against William, the balance of evidence was beginning to tilt in his favor. Numerous witnesses placed him on the tram at about six seven oh six p.m. that evening. Others claimed to have seen Julia live at about six forty-five. One was the milk delivery boy who testified he collected money from Julia between six thirty and six forty-five that evening. Time flame implied that William could only have had about twenty minutes to murder his wife, clean himself up, dispose of the murder weapon, which was never found, hide the money that was missing from the cash box, and then catch the tram. February 2nd, 1933, William Herbert Wallace was arrested and charged with his wife's murder. Should trial in Liverpool, as a few more brutal murders uh, could ever have been committed, this uh, elderly, lonely woman literally hacked to death for apparently no reason at all, according to the prosecuting counsel. During the trial, William seemed detached and spoke in a monotone when all detailing the events uh, connected to the murder. He, of course, failed to impress the jury and in the jury at the trial, crime writer F. Tennyson Jesse wrote the jury didn't like the man or his manner, which could have been either stoicism or callousness. They didn't understand his lack of expression, and they knew he was hiding something. Could have been sorrow or guilt, and they made their choice. People of unpleasing personality should be advised never to go into the witness box. And the fact that Wallace's round metal frame glasses resembled those of the notorious wife murderer Dr. Crippen probably didn't help his case either. All the evidence against Wallace was highly circumstantial. No motive was ever put forth. The trial only lasted four days, and the jury reached a verdict after deliberating for just an hour. Found guilty of his wife's murder and sentenced to die on the gallows. A month later, Wallace became the first man in Britain to have a conviction for murder dismissed on the grounds it was not supported by the evidence. He was a free man, but still met with general suspicion. Moved to a bungalow on the Mercy River, where two years later he died. Some said stress and a broken heart contributed to his demise. He went to his grave protesting his innocence. He was buried beside his wife. Well, if he wasn't responsible for his wife's murder, then the question becomes, who killed her? 1984, true crime writer Roger Wilkes speculated in his book, Wallace, the final verdict, the real murderer of Julia Wallace was Richard Gordon Perry, a former work colleague of Wallace. Another former colleague told police Wallace had reported Perry for wrongdoings led to Perry being fired. In his book, uh, Wilkes claims Perry wanted revenge on Wallace, so he lured Wallace from his home with the phone call and 
committed to murder while Wallace was out searching for the non-existent address. And while researching the case, Wilkes found a new witness, a retired mechanic named John Parks, who claimed that on the night of Julia Wallace's murder, he holds down Perry's car. He claimed the car's interior. He came across, uh, while in the car's interior, he came across a bloodstained glove, which Perry quickly snatched away. John Grimes's book, excuse me, John, uh, John Gannon's book, The Killing of Julia Wallace, named another suspect in the murder, Joseph Caleb Marsden. Gannon theorized Wallace knew he didn't have long to live and decided he didn't want to spend his final years with his hated wife. According to Gannon, Wallace hired Perry to make the bonus phone call to, in order to provide Wallace with a Kerstein alibi for the time of the murder. However, Gannon was adamant that neither Wallace nor Perry committed the murder, but Marsden did. Gannon asserted Marsden was about to marry into a wealthy family, but Wallace had discovered he was having a sexual relationship with Julia, which is kind of questionable. This gave Wallace the opportunity to blackmail Marsden into killing his wife for him. During the initial investigation, though, Marsden's name uh, cropped up as nothing more than an acquaintance of both Wallace and his wife. Since 1931, the so-called perfect murder of Julia Wallace has been investigated and reinvestigated numerous times. Nevertheless, experts have still uh, have contradicting opinions on the William Herbert Wallace's guilt. Many wild rumors circulated from Wallace having had an affair with Julia's sister to Julia being overinsured and killed by William for the money. One of the most imaginative theories in the case was that uh, William was the secret disciple of Aleister Crowley with numerous affairs behind his wife's back. But no evidence was ever uh, substantiated about any of these speculations. The murder of Julia Wallace continues to defy explanation. Crime novelist Raymond Chandler referred to the case as the non-parallel of all murder mysteries, the impossible murder, because Wallace couldn't have done it and neither could anybody else. Question becomes, who killed Julia Wallace? Well, on that note, we could end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about some more strange and unusual events. Till then, I'll enjoy your pie tomorrow. It's pie day. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.